a podcast all about Colorado true crime. My name's Laura, and I have a really interesting case for you guys today. It's about a couple who were in their 50s, and they went on this hiking day trip in Rocky Mountain National Park. And I have a few sources that I used for this case. I used a book by Michael Fleeman called The Black Widower. And I used Westward and Psychology Today and Rolling Stone and CBS. So this was a case that was all over the news. And a lot of different people covered it because this is a case, or a handful of cases rather, that involved a lot of seemingly freak accidents. And this strange manner in, with, in which these women died is um, something to be talked about, which is partially why I'm talking about it today. So in September of 2012... Harold and Tony Henthorn were celebrating their 12th wedding anniversary. Tony was a medical doctor, and she was an ophthalmologist, also known as an eye doctor. Her husband, Harold, did fundraising for churches and events. Harold was known to be sort of this planning type of guy. He um, contacted Tony's receptionist, where she worked, and asked her to put in fake appointments so that Harold could hide in an appointment room and basically surprise Tony when she came in thinking that she had a patient to see because he had been planning this huge trip to the Rocky Mountain National Park. The receptionist thought that this was sort of a romantic gesture, and it worked. Tony seemed surprised and happy to go with Harold on this trip. The couple left pretty hastily. Harold was like, I've got your bags packed for you already. Get in the car. We're going now. The couple had um, a couple of nights booked at the Stanley Hotel. And the Stanley Hotel, I'm sure many people who are my Colorado listeners know what the Stanley Hotel is. But for everyone else, it's, the, it's a historic hotel in Estes Park. It opened in 1909. And the interior of this hotel was used to film the classic horror movie The Shining. And this hotel is supposedly haunted. It's a super cool hotel to go to. But it's a bit pricey per night. It's a popular destination for tourists um, and Coloradans and the Henthorns, or Harold Henthorn, rather, because he chose this spot to take his wife, Tony, for their anniversary that weekend. So on September 29th, 2012, Harold and Tony plan a, a day hike at Deer Mountain Trail. It's a trail that's what's called an in-and-out trail, meaning that instead of being a loop back around to where your car's parked, it goes up to this peak of Deer Mountain and comes back down and is a total of about six miles. They also had dinner reservations in Estes Park for 8 p.m., but they would never make it to those reservations because while on the hike, Tony Henthorne fell to her death, a fall estimated at around 120 to 150 feet. So Harold Henthorn, seemingly in this total panic, um, at 5.54 p.m., he calls 911 from the mountain, and here's part of that call. The entire series of calls is about 20 minutes long, and I'm not going to subject you guys to all of it, because he calls back multiple times and says a whole bunch of different stuff. But here's um, a part of that call to get a feel for his emotions at this moment. 911, what's your address, the emergency? Hello, my name is Harold Hithorn. I'm in the Rocky Mountain National Park. Okay. I need, I need an Alpine Mountain Rescue Team immediately. Okay, what is your exact location? My exact location is Deer Mountain, North okay. Summit. 
Okay. About, one mile, about one mile south of the visitor center. Okay, I'm going to transfer you to the park, so hang on the line. You'll hear some, you're going to hear some clicking, and right now I'm pulling up your Latin, your long, okay. um, on my phone here. Let me try it one more time before I transfer you. They don't have this technology. Can I, can I sure you know where I am first? Okay. Yep, I have one okay. moment. Okay. Hang on. We take right where I am. And I'll introduce who we are when they pick up the phone. This is Esther, and we have a gentleman on Deer Mountain. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. My wife has fallen from a rock on the north summit of Deer Mountain, on the Deer Mountain Trail, when she's in really critical condition. She's had a bad fall. Her, uh, How far did she fall, sir? Uh, 30, 40 feet, 30 feet. 30, 40 feet. I, I, think, I think 30 feet. 30 feet. Are you with I, I am. Let me be sure that you know my location first. Okay. Cell, I have really bad cell coverage. Okay. So okay. I'm, I'm on Deer Mountain. Okay. Near the summit, not the normal, regular uh, northern summit, on the southern outcrops. Southern outcrops? If you look at from up south from the Fall Mountain Visitor Center, there are two very large outcrops. We are not on either one of those two. We are between the two. You're between we'll, the two outcrops that you can see from FRE, um, from Fall yeah. River. We are approximately 9,800 feet. I'm going to tell you, let me see if I hear you, Latin launch. Okay. Latitude, north latitude, about 23 minutes, about 15 seconds. Longitude, west, 105. West, approximately. I'm sorry, west where? 105 degrees west, longitude, uh, latitude, 35 minutes, approximately 20 seconds. I'll say again, we are not on the two large, steep outcrops. We're in the, the area between them. So I'm not one to judge, you know, how people sound when they're in a panic. Maybe he just went completely into business mode trying to get his wife up the mountain. But there's some weird stuff within this call. Harold indicates that they're not in an area that's even remotely near the trail or even within falling distance of the trail. They've completely gone off the grid. He gives latitude and longitude coordinates of where they are, which is will seem really strange for this couple later because neither, couple, neither of the people in this party are incredibly experienced with mountaineering, nor do they have really the supplies needed for this kind of trip. Um... He indicates that she's breathing, and he provides a pulse of about 60 to 80 beats per minute, which is actually a really good pulse, resting heart rates around 60 to 100 beats per minute for a healthy adult. He indicates that she's not conscious. He also states to the operator that she's going to be evacuated. He says it as this statement, not a request, and he keeps indicating that Flight for Life will come and get her. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, she's, she's going to be evacuated from here. Is there, is there any way that you could bring a helicopter in a flight for life? There's a clearing about 200, about 200 meters south of me, there's a clearing where you could easily, easily on, drop. On the radio. During this call, the operator's juggling. Um, there's only two people at the ranger center that day, and they're trying to juggle Harold and the ra radio rangers that are in the area to try and figure out this plan of what they're going to be doing. The operator indicates that a rescue team 
um, is going to be finding them on foot and that they're really quick and fit. And it's not going to take them an hour to get there like it did Harold and his wife. It's going to take them quite a bit less time. Um, they also tell him that there isn't any way to get a helicopter to where they are on this mountain and load somebody onto it. And that it isn't up to Harold to request a flight for life because he doesn't have the ability to do that. From Harold's description of where they are, it's clear that they just completely inexplicably went off the trail about 2.2 miles. As the call progresses, he gets more and more annoyed, stressing the need for a helicopter rescue and offering to do things like blow a whistle every 15 minutes, um, flash a mirror light towards the direction of the visitor center as a sort of beacon, and he argues with the operator that a team on foot is not adequate to reach his wife in time. All right. Here's the thing. I will pay any and all expenses for a helicopter. I don't care if it's private. I don't care if it's commercial. It wouldn't matter if it's medevac. I will. You know, I'll pay any and all expenses right now. Okay. Have you, have you drop a paramedic down here? I understand that, sir. Um, it's really on the safety of everybody involved, so that would really be up to the ranger okay. charge. Weather's good. There's there's no wind whatsoever right now. Weather is excellent. This building is, is at least five to eight miles. Um, there's. There's definitely, I mean, I, I'm not a paramedic, but I'm doing all I can do. Um, you could safely drop a paramedic from a, from a 10-foot rope. I mean, easily do that. I understand that, sir, but they definitely need to probably get someone on scene. They do have hasty teams, and those okay. are the teams that are going to run up there okay. as fast as possible and get to your location. So Harold's basically doing exactly what everyone will find that he does in life is that he tries to take control of a situation and tell people what's going to happen rather than make requests. And during this entire call, um, a phone call go, this phone call goes on for a while and he suggests all this stuff and he never really mentions Tony again or her status or what's going on with his wife. And he doesn't appear on the phone to be doing much to try to save his wife, who he says is still alive and still has really good heart rate by the time he calls in. The operator um, ends up asking him what her status is eventually, and he says that her respiration is weaker at this point, and her pulse is down to five beats per minute, which isn't good. He mentions that he thinks she has a concussion, and you'll see later why this was a total understatement for her. The operator is still trying to coordinate more assistance, and Harold agrees to call her back at 6.30 unless Tony's status changes. So before 6.30, at 6.10, he calls back and says her breathing is even shallower now. He mentions at this time that he has started burning moss to try to signal rangers in the area, and the operator's thinking that after a long, dry summer, this doesn't really sound like a great idea to add a potential forest fire into the problem. Um, so she says to stop doing that. Um, they hang up again, and Harold, at this point, during all of this, somehow Harold's also texting a lot of people. Um, he starts texting Tony's brother, Barry, who's a cardiac surgeon, and texts him stats that Barry will later say don't make a ton of sense once the call is actually heard and the timing is actually figured out. He says that her pulse is 60, her respiration is at 5, at around 6.30 p.m. And he had already stated on this call at 6.10 that her vital signs were much worse than that. Ten minutes later, he texts that there's no pulse. At around 7.15 p.m., he texts Barry that she's critical. So it's sort of strange that she had no pulse before she was critical. 
And at 7.30, he texts that there's no pulse. During um, this time, Barry's assuming that Harold is doing CPR, but Harold only later calls 911 back and requests a guide through CPR protocol. The operator instructs him to close her nose and tilt her head back. So she instructs him where on the chest to press down, and she tells him that she's going to be keeping a count over the phone for his chest compressions. But Harold's talking over her during this entire time, and he says something about his cell phone dying. At around 8.01 p.m., Ranger Mark Faraday reaches this cliffside where Harold was with Tony, and he was guided there by the light of the small fire that Harold had set. The ranger noted that the scene was really strange as soon as he arrived. As he approached, Harold saw him, and he dashed over to Tony and began chest compressions that he hadn't been doing. So it's like he was sort of the, sitting there on a rock, sort of staring off. And when he saw the ranger approaching, he made a mad dash to make it look like he was trying to save Tony. Ranger Faraday told him to stop, and he was about to take over CPR, and he noted that Tony's head was wrapped in some kind of clothing or shirt, and he noted that her pupils were completely fixed, she had no pulse, and she wasn't breathing. And so at 8.12, he called the command post to report that Tony Hinthorn was dead. And to him, it was sort of apparent that she had been dead for some time. So that night, Ranger Faraday led Harold away from the scene, leaving other rangers who arrived to camp with the body. And these rangers kept the sort of grim vigil over the body so that she could be removed the next day and that no animals or anything would be carrying her away. Um, when Ranger Faraday went back the next day, he could see the scene in the daylight and take it all in. There was a blood trail leading from another area, meaning that the body was moved from that area. Despite this sudden fall and Harold's supposed panic, all of her belongings, including the camera that she was supposedly holding, were piled neatly near her, and the camera was not broken whatsoever. Tony had a gaping wound on her scalp that was so bad her hair was completely soaked red from the blood. So she typically had this bright blonde, platinum blonde hair, and it was literally just completely soaked red. They strapped her body to a gurney and carried her three miles to the trailhead, and she was sent to McKee Medical Center in Loveland for an autopsy, and Faraday set up an interview with Harold. Faraday, much like many of the people in the coming months, had a lot of questions for Harold. Harold was back at their house in Highlands Ranch when Faraday came down to question him, and Harold immediately showed Faraday a prepared slideshow of the trip photos. So in his grief, um, the night after his wife just died, Harold sits down and he puts together a slideshow of this doomed trip to show the park ranger in their living room. Faraday asked him, why did they veer so far off of this trail? And Harold said that he had scouted the area months earlier to determine the absolute perfect views for him and his wife on their anniversary trip. He had even marked the trail on a topographical map, which he had used to provide um, the longitude and latitude coordinates that he had basically memorized of this exact spot. He had not used a trail map. Um, Harold claimed that they wanted to get better views for lunch and that then Tony spotted wild turkeys and they made this treacherous climb down the cliffside to find these wild turkeys that they supposedly saw. 
why they had apparently taken their time and still been on this deep area of the trail at around 6 p.m. when they had dinner reservations at 8 was also asked. And Harold said that they were just caught up in the moment of this amazing vista and it was apparently of no concern to them that the sun was going down and that they needed to be back for dinner. Both Tony and Harold were in their mid-50s. Tony had limited mobility due to knee complications, and she had actually had replacement knees put in. So what possessed them to not only go on such a strenuous hike, but to veer off the trail into difficult climbing areas? Well, Harold also indicated that he wanted what he called private time with his wife, and he even brought a blanket supposedly for this reason— And what he was referring to with that, I'm sure you all can infer, but whatever happened to this blanket, I'm not sure because it wasn't put on Tony. He wanted details of this moment that Tony fell, the ranger did. And Harold said that Tony was closer to this edge where they were and that he received a text on his phone from their daughter's babysitter, which he looked at. And when he turned around, Tony was just gone. He said it took him about 45 minutes to get down to where his wife's body landed And for whatever reason, he didn't call 911 before this trek down. He waited to call 911 when he got to her. And discrepancies in this story would be uncovered later on. Faraday showed Henthorne a different map that he had found in Henthorne's Jeep. And this map was a standard trail map that Harold did not have with him on the trail. This map showed the path of their hike, including the area that they went off the trail, and curiously it had an X in pink highlighter at the exact spot where Tony had fallen to her death. And Harold, for whatever reason, couldn't explain the X on this map at all, and he was at a loss for words for probably the first time in his life. At the hospital, the medical examiner for Larimer County did this autopsy, and he noted the well-healed scars from the knee replacement surgery. He also noted the following, um, which was pretty consistent with the fall. Her breast implants had ruptured from her hitting the ground so hard. Her chest was flattened. Her liver had a two-inch cut from the blunt trauma of the fall. Two of her vertebrae were cracked. She had several shattered ribs, cuts and bruises on her chest, abdomen, thighs, ankles, and pelvis. She had a gash on her head. And here's the horrible part. It was eventually decided that she had basically been scalped by a tree on the way down the mountain. She had internal brain bleeding. And it was difficult for them to find any blood in her body to take a sample because she had lost so much blood. There was also no indication that CPR had been administered. And supposedly, according from family later on, Harold actually did have some CPR training. Most people don't realize how hard and deep chest compressions need to go for CPR. If you're giving someone CPR, it is a last-ditch effort to keep blood on a minimal level, pumping to their brain, to keep their brain functioning and alive. And you need to just break their chest bone in order to make this happen. Basically, you need to break their sternum and get that chest really down, pumping that heart manually. And often the chest is bruised, and often the sternum is broken in this process. And despite all of her injuries, she had no CPR-related injuries whatsoever. It was also noted by the 
by the medical examiner that the diamond in her wedding ring was also missing. And it makes sort of sense to me that this fell out of the setting while she was falling. But the diamond would be brought up later at trial because it was worth around $30,000, which is an absolutely huge diamond. I can't even imagine. And this diamond was not found in Harold's possession. Um, Pathologists have to determine two different things when they do an autopsy. One is the medical reason that the person died, and the other is the circumstance leading to their demise. So, for example, car crash victims are often autopsy to determine what precise medical reason there was for them dying, and that the circumstance would then be the car crash. In the case of Tony Henthorne, the medical examiner stated that she died of multiple blunt force injuries when she fell or was pushed from a cliff, and that the manner of death was actually undetermined, with homicide not being excluded. And unfortunately for Tony's family, um, they had to hear that she was alive for a bit after she fell. Probably within the span of an hour, she died. And to have her be in that much pain, um, almost scalped, is was just horrible for the family to hear. So, with all that said, who exactly is Toni Henthorne? Um, her original name was Toni Bertolet, and she was a Southern Belle. The Bertolet um, family are a prominent oil family in Mississippi. Her parents, Bob and Yvonne Bertolet, ran a successful family oil business. Her brother Todd went into oil and gas as a geologist, and her brother Barry, as I stated, went into medicine along with Tony. Tony was the middle child, and she grew up between two brothers who both adored her and really had a protective way with her. Um, they said that she was a devoted Christian. Her two brothers said that she was the absolute smartest among all of them, that she graduated magna cum laude from Old Miss, or Old Miss, excuse me. And she got her MD from University Medical Center. She eventually made Consumer Research Council's list of America's top ophthalmologists, and she owned her own practice in Mississippi where her mother kept her books for her. She was married once before to her college sweetheart and went through a very traumatic divorce um, with him that took a huge toll on her. And all she wanted was children, and she never got them from her first marriage. So without her family knowing, and I'm not sure why they thought they really should know, Tony turned to the internet, as many people do um, in the early 2000s, to find love. She went to the dating site Christian Mingle because she wanted to find someone with similar values to her own. On Christian Mingle, she came across a handsome man with seemingly all the qualities that she wanted in a guy. Handsome, devoted Christian, enjoyed contemporary Christian music, and going to movies. He rarely drank. He didn't smoke. He said he lives in the central U.S. and had a dog. His job description was that he was some kind of executive. And most of my listeners have seen some pretty self-aggrandizing dating profiles, but Harold really laid it on thick. He said, and I quote here, I'm an outgoing, fun, caring, sincere, growing man of God who is very young at heart, is passionate about life, has a great sense of humor, and who communicates well. Friends would also probably add that I'm an active, adventurous, trustworthy, and sensitive man who has a heart for others, especially children, and is a good listener. 
Even though I have never had any children, I'm dedicated uncle to my many nieces and nephews. I'm also usually described as being tall, dark, athletic, and attractive. End quote. So this man is the whole package, I guess, if you're into that. And just for the cherry on top of this godly package, he mentions that he was an Eagle Scout when he was 15. His description of himself went on to say that he worked for a national firm as a development consultant for nonprofit organizations. He seemingly enjoyed every activity under the sun, from scuba diving to most sports to sailing to even watching romantic comedies. Really, the only faults he hinted at in his profile was that he wasn't much of a multitasker, which sounds almost like a fault someone brings up when they're at an interview for a job. He also mentioned that he was a widower. At some point, Tony contacted Harold on Christian Mingle, and the two met in person. And within mere weeks, Tony's family was meeting Harold, and the two were announcing their plans to marry. Initially, the Bertolais thought that Harold was just the perfect man for Tony. He appeared devoted to her. He appeared very smart. He was a fountain of information, and her brothers eventually thought that he talked a little bit too much about all the money he made and the kind of over-the-top life that he wanted to provide for Tony. But they were happy that she was happy, basically. And I can't stress enough, Tony was extremely successful in her own career. Her practice would eventually be sold and become a multi-million dollar practice, which it was already well on its way to when she owned it. Not only this, but Tony was receiving monthly royalty checks from her family's gas and oil business that could be anywhere from $4,000 to $24,000 a month, depending on the market. So she was pulling in money, but Harold insisted when she moved with him to Colorado that she wouldn't have to work and could focus on just having children and starting their family, and that he made more than enough money to make up for her income from her practice. So on to their traditional Southern wedding. The wedding was the Bertolet family's first glimpse of Harold's controlling demeanor. Despite this being the second time around for both of them, the wedding was a typical traditional Southern wedding with all the bells and whistles and everything added on. He immediately took control of this wedding, not letting Tony have really any say in much of anything, including what she wore. He refused to let Tony put Dr. Tony Bertolet on the invitations and announcements because he found it demeaning to him. He promised to pay for the rehearsal dinner, as was traditional for the groom, but had Tony's brothers arrange it and pay for it while promising to write them a check, and this check just never came. So right off the bat, he falls through on this huge promise to her brothers and... They're left not really super impressed by this whole mess. Um, Harold also dropped by the Bertolais' house to see Tony on the night before her wedding, a big Southern faux pas, apparently. And as she was making last-minute preparations, um, she got so stressed out by him nagging her and being there that she cried in her bedroom on the night before her own wedding. Tony's mother went in and told her that it'd be okay to call the wedding off if she wanted to, but they all pressed on and were married on the 30th of September 2000 in Jackson, Mississippi. Harold made Tony's brothers ushers instead of groomsmen, and he picked out the music and the singer. He picked out the decorations, and he also promised to buy the wedding photos, but he never did. So Tony's parents purchased the photos after realizing none were going to be forthcoming. 
After the wedding, they went on a Hawaiian honeymoon paid for by Tony's family and then left to begin their married life in Colorado. Tony still traveled back to Mississippi to make sure the sale of her practice and transfer was going right, and Harold would often come with her, so he didn't really leave her side for too long at all. In 2002, the practice transfer was finally done, and Tony stayed permanently in Colorado, and her family had little chance to really talk to her ever again. Um, whenever she was on the phone, Harold was behind her, asking her to get off the phone. Whenever she tried to talk, Harold would talk over her. Whenever she called, she had to get off the phone because Harold came home. The thriving business Harold claimed to have and the large income that he claimed to have were not something that Tony ever experienced or saw. Money became so tight that she started working at an eye clinic in Cherry Creek, first part-time, and then she eventually moved to full-time and was just working constantly. So... Finally, in 2005, uh, the last part of her plan and reason for all of this came to fruition when she gave birth to a daughter named Haley. It was a really difficult birth for Tony, as she was 43 at the time, and her family all came out to greet this new member of the family, and Harold made sure that he was at the center of it all. In fact, it was really apparent to her family that he rarely let Tony actually hold Haley at all. Tony was never alone with the baby, and if she picked her up, Harold rushed over and took the baby away from her. He also wouldn't allow the TV to be on any time the baby was in the house, and it became really apparent that raising Haley would become Harold's job, and Harold's only job. Tony only ever got the chance to be around her daughter privately when Harold left on what he called business trips. Despite Tony pulling in all of the money, Harold still touted himself as this huge financial wizard. He pushed his abilities for finances on Tony's brothers. He bragged about the money his business made. And privately, Tony told her family that if Harold was making any money, that she had no freaking clue where it was because she wasn't seeing any of it. Tony became increasingly distant and withdrawn. Harold would take messages for her from her family and never tell her. Tony would be grateful whenever a royalty check came because their finances were in complete shambles. She worked mostly while Harold raised Haley, and this was really the exact opposite of the life that Harold had promised her when they got married, which was that she would be at home having the children, raising the children, and that Harold would be pulling in more than enough money for them all to be comfortable. Then on Memorial Day weekend, 2011, the couple was with Haley at their cabin in Grand Lake when Harold called Tony outside. As she stepped outside, she saw something on the ground and bent to, over to pick this up, and a beam of wood from the roof came crashing down on the back of her neck. Harold had been working on the roof, and he was on the roof at the time, and the injury was deemed this total accident. Tony would have pain and numbness in her extremities for months, and shortly after this accident, she visited Mississippi without Harold, and her parents expressed their concerns, telling her that they were worried about her and Harold, and that they didn't think that she should be alone with Harold too much. And this was really an impossible task for a married couple. So Tony sort of was like, eh, and left. So a year later, as soon as the Bertolets were notified that Tony was dead, 
the first thing they thought was he pushed her. Barry reviewed his text from Harold on the mountain, and they didn't make any sense at all to Barry, who was a cardiac surgeon. Her pulse was normal, and then suddenly low, and then suddenly normal again. In all of Harold's descriptions of the fall and the moments afterwards, he was completely dry-eyed. He prepared slideshows of pictures, chose music, and insisted on planning the memorial only days after her death, which was pretty strange for a a husband who supposedly consumed with grief. He was even dry-eyed as he relayed the story to the Bertolais at one point saying that he dragged Tony to a better spot for CPR and that the back of her head was bouncing on the rocks as he dragged her. And he didn't apparently see any problem with telling this to her parents. As his stories came out, they started to contradict one another. At first, he said he got a text on his phone and that he was looking at it as she fell. But another time, he said that it was Tony's phone and that he was mad that she was being contacted by her office during their special trip that he had planned. It was later revealed that in their rush to leave the office after Harold's surprise, Tony left her phone back in the clinic. So this story about her phone going off was just a complete lie. Harold would say Tony was taking a picture of him with the camera in her hands as she teetered on this cliff, but the camera that would have fallen with her wasn't broken at all, so that didn't make any sense. Harold paced around the room as he would speak and say all these different stories. Um, He wanted Tony cremated as soon as possible, and he planned a really quick funeral. He refused to let Tony's mother put her in a special dress that she bought to be buried in, and he refused to let her be cremated in it as well. Harold began getting increasingly agitated about Ranger Faraday's line of questioning and the official response to Tony's death. He was very agitated about the map that they found in his car. At the time of Tony's death, a friend of Harold's named Daniel was living in the house to help Harold, and Harold gave him copies of the photos on the mountain that day to safeguard, and also confided in him about the map and seemed very upset about it. Daniel never knew why Harold was so upset about this map, and he also never knew that there was an X on the map in the spot where Tony fell. So because Tony fell in a national park, the national park brought in their own staff of detectives and the FBI also got involved. One such detective named Elizabeth Schott was assigned to this case and she was immediately very suspicious of how strange this all was. Checking Harold's phone, she found that he received a text from the babysitter only minutes before he called 911, about 45 minutes after he said Tony fell. No other texts came in, and in regards to it taking 45 minutes to get to where Tony fell, Agent Schott and Ranger Faraday retraced the steps of this whole hike and said that even an unexperienced hiker could have gotten down there in under 20 minutes easily. So what was he doing for those 45 minutes? When they retraced this hike, they were also perplexed as to why the couple ever wandered off the trail. There was literally no indication from where they were standing on the trail through the trees that heading that direction would have been a good spot to sightsee or anything of that um, nature. Harold did have a topographical map, which doesn't really tell a person much other than the where the steepest cliffs are. <laughs> So after the couple had lunch in this remote area, 
They decided to scramble even further down the cliff to another spot, the spot where Tony would end up falling, a hike that Agent Shot said she had to hold onto rocks and tree branches and get on her back at times to slide because it was so steep. Later, Harold said he was actually looking for a text message, not at one that came in, and insisted that he was looking at Tony's phone, which, of course, was back at the clinic. He would also later say it was a phone call from Haley's babysitter about Haley's soccer game, a phone call that they determined never happened. After a second very awkward memorial in Mississippi at the same church that Harold and Tony were married in, Harold told the Bertolais that because of all the heat on him, he expected to be arrested when he was arriving back in Denver. But he wasn't arrested. The investigation was still ongoing and would be ongoing for a couple more years. And it was about to take an entirely new turn because letters were coming into Larimer County Coroner's Office and the Sheriff's Office, and they all said the same thing. Tony Henthorne was not the first wife of Harold's to die in the Rocky Mountains under mysterious circumstances. So let's hop in the time machine and go back to May 6, 1995. On this evening, someone knocked on the door of a man named Van Anthony Hayes, who lives not far from Highway 67 in a somewhat remote stretch of Pike National Forest. The person at his door was a woman in her late 30s or early 40s, and she said that her last name was Montoya. She told Mr. Hayes that about a quarter of a mile away, a woman was badly hurt in a turnout and they needed help. The woman asked Hayes to use his house phone to call 911, as this was before the widespread use of cell phones, and no one had them. He called 911 and told them where to go, and then left to find out where this injured woman was. Temperatures hovered around the mid-30s, and there was an emergency signal flare on the side of the road that pierced through this pitch black of the turnout. There were no street lamps in this area. Mr. Hayes pulled his car behind a Jeep Cherokee that had the tailgate open and shined his light on a peculiar scene. A woman was clearly face down in the gravel on the passenger side of the vehicle, not moving. A man was standing near her. The woman with the last name of Montoya pulled in behind him, and Mr. Hayes could see that there were other people in her car, several adults and some children. The adults in the Montoya car were helping the woman. They rolled her over, and they put blankets as well as their own jackets on top of her. Within minutes, the 911 sirens could be heard, and the Montoya woman and her party left, leaving Mr. Hayes with the woman on the ground and the man who calmly stood near her. A man named Terry Thompson and his force of volunteer EMTs arrived, as well as a police officer named Jason Kennedy, who had an amateur knowledge of dealing with these kinds of scenes. Several other police officers would show up, but their note-taking on the fine details of what would transpire and where would remain a point of contention in the case for years to come. What all the officers did note was that the right front tire of the Jeep had been removed and the Jeep was up on a jack as if the couple had been replacing the tire. The EMTs reported that somehow the woman had been crushed by the Jeep. He noted two separate orange jacks, one laying near the car and some lug nuts that were underneath the car. 
Jason Kennedy turned to the man, idly standing near the woman as the EMTs worked on her, and asked him what was going on, and the man gave his name as Harold Henthorne. Harold told the officer that they were on their way to dinner in Sedalia when he felt like their right front tire was going, as he described, mushy. He said that there had been construction going on at his house and that he had several flat tires recently due to nails. So he and his wife, Sandra Lynn Henthorne, who went by Lynn, pulled over to put on the spare tire. He said he jacked the car up at the front right side and his wife stood behind him holding a rag with the lug nuts. Once he removed the tire, he went to the back and tossed it into the Jeep only to then hear a scream. He said that when he threw the tire in the Jeep, it came off the jack and his wife was then stuck, pinned face down underneath the brake assembly of the wheel with the weight of the car on her back. He reported that she was screaming and yelling. At 11.20, Flight for Life arrived and carried Lynn to Swedish Medical Center in Inglewood, Colorado. The attending physician noted that there were no external wounds except for the large purple blotch from her neck to waist on her back and that her chest was clearly crushed. She was taken immediately into surgery to assess her internal bleeding. On the way to the hospital, Harold gave a slightly different story to a different officer, driving him to the hospital, um, telling him that they were actually on their way back from dinner and going on a night drive in the opposite direction of their home. He told the officer um, that he thought Lynn had dropped a lug nut and that she had somehow crawled underneath this jacked up car to retrieve it when the car fell on top of her. He also offered information not pertinent to the incident at hand, that they had been married for 13 years, and that she was unable to have children due to a medical condition. Harold mentioned that at some point he flagged down a car, and he couldn't remember if he or they eventually removed Lynn from under the Jeep. This car was the one carrying the Montoya woman and her family. Harold sat with an officer in the hospital, and the officer excused himself so that a doctor could come in at 2.40 a.m. and notify Harold that his wife had died. There is no report about Harold's reaction to this news. The coroner noted a uh, two separate half-inch wide, six-inch long parallel bruises in the center of Lynn's back, consistent with the brake assembly jamming into her back. An autopsy revealed the cause of death, which was asphyxiation due to the brake assembly crushing her chest. The manner of death or why she crawled under the Jeep was not determined, and an article in the paper described the death as a road accident, though it was unlike any accident anyone had come across. At the crime scene, a detective and a crime scene um, analyst reviewed the vehicle. They noted two tires in the back that both had low air pressure. They found several lengths of rope, um, paper towel, a piece of shirt, which I suspect could have been the rag that she was using to hold these lug nuts, a pair of gloves, three different jacks, including a boat jack that was inappropriate for a Jeep, a white sheet, a garbage bag, an umbrella, pliers, a snow scra scraper, and curiously, an old shower curtain. They also noted that there was a shoe print on the right front wheel well, as if someone had put their foot up there at some point. But the shoe print was never analyzed or matched with anyone's shoes at the scene that night. 
Anthony Hayes, who lived nearby, gave his statement, saying he came down and saw the woman lying on the ground because she had been previously removed by the Montoyas, and he confirmed that she had a pulse and was breathing. Over the next few days, some curious details would emerge about Harold and Lynn. They had two life insurance policies, one for each other, in the amounts of $300,000 that Harold said were purchased with the possibility for future children because Lynn was receiving treatment related to her condition that prevented her from having children. Harold had an offense report on his criminal background check dated March 11, 1994, for shoplifting men's underwear from a JCPenney in Littleton. He had reported his job at this time as self-employed RDS development and gave a post office box in New Jersey. After hearing Lynn had died, Patricia Montoya, who was in the vehicle that helped Lynn, came by the police station to volunteer her version of the events that night. They had also returned to retrieve their coats, which they had left on top of Lynn because she didn't have any other way to keep warm. The first thing that Montricia, Patricia Montoya told the interviewer was that there was no way Lynn had gotten under the car like that. She and the adults in the car all told police that they found the situation strange and that they could not imagine how she had gotten under the car in that position and that they came in to ask if Harold had been arrested. One of her brothers told police that when he pulled up, Harold told him that his wife was changing the tire because he didn't know how to change tires, which the man thought was strange. Um, Harold refused to give up his coat for Lynn and urged the Montoya family not to touch her, making it sort of strange why he flagged down their car in the first place, other than maybe to have them provide witness that Lynn was in fact underneath his car. When asked why they left the scene before police arrived, they said that they were scared because they had been drinking. So they left Lynn with their jackets on her and they drove away. In their last conversation with Harold, the police went to his house in Littleton for a final statement and they asked what brought the couple to the mountains. And he said that they left for a drive and headed to Cheeseman Reservoir a good hundred miles into the mountains. They only stayed at the reservoir for a minute or so before deciding that they were hungry and they headed down to the Sedalia Grill. Before arriving, however, Harold pulled off because he thought that the tire felt like it was going flat. And they pulled over and he said Lynn put down the old shower curtain and he never really explained why they traveled with this or what its purpose was, but I guess she thought that they would get dirty. I don't know. The first jack broke, he said, so he used the boat jacks, which are not designed to lift anything as heavy as a Jeep. The police never verified if they had or had not actually been to the Sedalia Grill, and they never verified if the jack for the Jeep had actually broken or not or was working. Lynn put this boat jack on top of a piece of concrete that she found on the side of the road, this concrete eventually broke, and that's when the whole thing came falling on Lynn. Harold now stated that when he tossed the old tire into the back of the Jeep, it kind of bounced back out, even though it was never seen outside of the trunk, and that at this point the car slipped off the jack and crushed his wife. And following this, the coroner released his report saying that Lynn died of asphyxiation and the incident was ruled an accident. At no point was the shoe print on the wheel ever called into question. 
nor was really the uh, timeline of that night or why they were up there in the first place or whether or not they had gone to the grill. Um, And the file was placed into a drawer until 2012 when the life of Harold Hinthorne was being scrutinized yet again because his second wife, Tony, had fallen to her death. So back in 2012... As the FBI park detectives in Douglas County looked further into Harold, they found out quite a bit more about him. And who boy did they find out quite a lot about Harold. Harold had taken out three separate life insurance policies on Tony, totaling $4.5 million. And in April of 2011, beneficiary of Tony's $1.5 million policy changed from Haley to Harold. And two other $1.5 million policies opened by Harold had Harold as the beneficiary. Harold had also kept in contact with Lynn's family for a while and was assisting Lynn's sister-in-law named Grace Rochelle with her own life insurance policies and paying the premiums for them. And without the knowledge of this sister-in-law, he made himself the beneficiary on that policy as well instead of her kids. Harold was actually jobless. He had not pulled in any income from a job in years, not a dime, and reported nothing on income tax returns. All of the money was from Tony. Family friends would point out that he left and went on business trips and would give them a time when his plane left and then he would leave after his flight was supposed to take off and he would leave without any luggage. The investigators actually discovered that he would drive to a Panera across town and sit there all day, eating food and surfing the net on his laptop. The employees of the Panera knew him well because he was the guy who would come into their restaurant on a lot of weekends and sit and make demands of them and surf the flipping net all day. They found out that Tony had confided in some close friends that Harold would often threaten her with divorce if she crossed him. Harold and Tony slept in separate bedrooms, and by all accounts, their relationship was loveless, and Harold was in control. In April of 2012, five months before Tony went down the cliff, Tony opened up her own private bank account, and by all indications, she was doing this to start to separate herself and her money from Harold. Harold had visited the Deer Mountain Trail in the Rocky Mountain National Park, nine total times by himself before taking Tony there. His reasoning was that he wanted to find just the most beautiful views and the best possible trail for the perfect weekend he was planning with his wife, but he could never provide an explanation for that X on the map. He could have said that it was going to be their lunch spot. He could have said that it was a spot with a great view. I mean, there was li- I could th- come up with a bunch of different explanations for that X that would sort of make sense, but he, this was the one thing that he just could not come up with a reason for. And he sort of acted like he was caught whenever they talked about it. As to the whole hiking trip in general, Tony's friends and coworkers thought it was an inappropriate activity for Tony. And it was just an inappropriate activity for a couple in their fifties who weren't really all that fit. As I had mentioned, Tony had two knee replacements and had residual pain and numbness from the board falling on her neck at the cabin. The family's photographer had done some portraits for them not long before this and said that Harold was in charge of the photos and he wanted shots of them and their daughter 
laying in the grass with their feet up in the air and lots of weird positions that Tony had trouble moving into. She wasn't in any position to do this super strenuous hike, much less crawl down rocks to this absolute perfect lunch spot that Harold just had to be at. Investigators found out that Harold had made some 22 calls and sent 97 text messages from the mountain during the time that Tony was dying or likely already dead. And he supposedly had a low battery cell phone during all this. He messaged her brother, his friends, the babysitter, and made many calls to the rangers to update their status. Despite this overly zealous approach to saving his wife when the rangers came upon them, he appeared to be suddenly scrambling over to start CPR on Tony, who had pretty clearly been dead for some time. Her lipstick on her lips was still in place, and there was absolutely no indication that CPR had been attempted. So Harold would finally be arrested for this, and prior to his arrest, he still had custody of he and Tony's daughter, Haley. And parents at Haley's school urged the school to bar Harold from the grounds, saying that they didn't trust him and that they were afraid of him after all of this started to come out, and the school did end up barring um, Harold from the grounds, which I'm sure was incredibly stressful for his daughter, who still had to go to school and deal with all of this. The trial was actually fairly quick. It only lasted about 10 days. Before the trial, they had an evidence hearing because the prosecution wanted to bring in a few points and they wanted to include information from the death of Lynn Henthorne as evidence of Harold's planning of these events and of basically his repetitive pattern here that started. There were strange similarities that you have to admit between both cases. Both women died in remote areas in freak accidents that only Harold was witness to. Both women had life insurance policies that Harold would stand to collect on. In both stories, Harold told many multiple versions of what had actually happened. In the death of Lynn Henthorne, he told his next wife, Tony, that she had died in a car accident. And he had told other people other versions, including one where she had died from cancer. Both incidents involved a Jeep Cherokee, and both incidents involved a slow and not quite um, up-to-par sort of response. In the case of Tony, it was up-to-par, but it was just another situation where it was going to take a while for people to get there and help. And both situations involved a lot of time that's inexplicable, and it could have been even longer between when this incident happened and he actually called for help. Um, There is like 45 minutes unaccounted for by Harold um, during the hiking trip with Tony. And it's unclear how long Lynn had been under the Jeep before he flagged the car down with the Montoya family in it. Um, The prosecution actually recreated the scene where Lynn was trapped under the Jeep And it was evident from the pictures that her being under this wheel well to retrieve the lug nuts was just a ridiculous place to be in. There will be a picture of this on the Instagram page. And it's pretty clear that even if she wanted to crawl under the car, let's say, crawling under it so that her back was underneath the wheel well, um, uh, basically her small of her back was going to be touching the brake assembly of the wheel well 
when she could have clearly crawled underneath the car if she wanted from the front, which was much higher off the ground and had a bigger gap. She basically crawled under the car where there was the smallest gap possible, which is just doesn't make any freaking sense. Um, this team who recreated her death used the same type of boat jack, and they actually couldn't get the Jeep to budge off of this boat jack that they used to jack it up. They tried throwing the tires in the back. They tried just absolutely tossing them in. And get this, the only way that they could get the Jeep to come off the jack was if an investigator put his foot in the same spot that the shoe print was on the wheel well and just pushed the car off the jack. How on earth he would have gotten Lynn underneath the car in the first place to be there is uh, anyone's guess. So they also wanted to bring up at the trial the many life insurance policies, including the one on Grace Rochelle, the sister-in-law of Lynn Henthorn, as evidence that Harold was basically playing this life insurance game for money. And Grace Rochelle could have been next. They wanted to bring up the death of Lynn Henthorn, the shoe print on the wheel well that looked like someone had kicked the Jeep off the jack, and a county coroner actually got the official circumstance of Lynn's death changed from accident to undetermined for this trial. They also wanted to bring up the injury on Tony at the cabin and all of the lies and deceptions of Harold. His lack of any job, his controlling nature, his stories... They wanted to bring this all up, and guess what? The judge allowed all of it. The defense for Harold had kind of a strange argument that Harold was a liar. Yeah, let's all say and agree that he was a liar. But he was just also the most unlucky guy who ever existed. I mean, two wives dead from a mysterious freak accident in the mountain was just no proof of murder that they said. And granted, it's sort of true. How do you prove that someone was pushed off of a cliff? How do you prove that someone pushed a car off of a jack onto somebody else? I mean, that aspect of these murders was sort of well thought out, I think. But um, it was just his blundering and inability to keep his story straight that got him um, that got him in the end. The jury came back with a verdict of guilty of the murder in the first degree, and Harold was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And this was for the murder of Tony Bertolet. Barry Bertolet, Tony's older brother, ended up adopting Haley, and she took the Bertolet last name, having nothing to do with her father. Lynn's family believes justice has been served, and they were present at the trial, but they want to possibly pursue another trial for the death of Lynn just to get that official and they wanted to start pursuing that after all of Harold's appeals for the murder of Tony were exhausted which is coming up soon so was Harold just this unlucky husband or was he lazy and money hungry Tony's family was incredibly persistent in their suspicions of Harold, as were a lot of people who knew them, and that was part of what propelled this case forward and uncovered most of his lies. And just as a bit of trivia, the official term for a male who is a black widower, as in a man who kills wives for money, is a bluebeard. So that's this case, everybody. Everyone should go online and check out the Colored Red Instagram at Colored Red Podcast for images associated with this case, including the recreated image of Lynn underneath this wheel well that I'm sure you'll all see is just ridiculous. 
Um, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with an historical case for you all. Until next time. Mm-hmm.